The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome. Is it full moon tonight? Or was it yesterday? Spring has arrived right into summer. So we'll have small groups later in the evening. And uh, I feel like it's such a useful topic. You know, it's, it's a little embarrassing, of course, because a lot of us have been practicing for a long time. Holly, would you shut the light off in there while you're there? I feel like it's a little embarrassing, but it's it's really, I think, a sign of uh, yeah, just depth of practice that we're willing to confess to having some confusion about what mindfulness is. Did you feel that way just in the guided instructions tonight? And like, what is what do we mean by this thread of mindful awareness? And what is it exactly? And what isn't it? And what gets in the way. And I, I tried, for those who were here last week or weren't here last week, I tried to make the point that I think Bhikkhu Analio does and a lot of our teachers make, which is the Buddha's, a lot of the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, like in the Satipatthana Sutta, as best we understand it, this collection of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, it's really, they're really, in a sense, preliminary practices that help us shift our view of what it means to be present, what it means to be mindful. Not so much instruction about what to be mindful of or how to be mindful, but the understanding, like correcting the underlying understanding of what it means to be, what it means for the knowing, excuse me, the knowing mind, what it means for the knowing mind to connect, to know the experience of the present moment, like what it means to connect to know sensation or feeling or to know the quality of the mind. Is it a stable mind, an expansive mind, or is it a fragmented mind, a contracted mind, a narrow mind? Is the mind being pushed around by the hindrances or is the mind unafflicted by the hindrances? So the Buddha somewhere says, mindfulness is conducive to great profit. That is, the highest mental development. And it is through such attainment that deliverance from the sufferings of the cycle of existence is possible. The person who delights in mindfulness and regards heedlessness with dread, appropriately afraid of justifying distraction, right? Because that's what we do most of the time. It's like, yeah, I'm for all for mindfulness, but let me obsess with this for a little bit. I'll come back to it. I mean, 
I'm talking about like in a set, let alone in our daily life. Because isn't that what happens? Something juicy appears. Oh, yeah. Let me just take a break. I'll come back. And let me just figure this problem out or think this through or see where this fantasy leads. And then I'll come back. Again, this last part, um, the sufferings, uh, wait, oh, the person who delights in mindfulness and regards heedlessness with dread is not liable to fall away. Such a person is in the vicinity of Nibbana, right? The cessation of the cycles of suffering, the cessation or the falling away of greed, anger, and delusion. So from that chart that was sent out earlier, thanks to Dave Radelman who reformatted that. So now the link online, and I think the link I sent will give you a, I think the link, you have to go to the link that's on our webpage. It's just a, a nicer formatted, more nicely formatted. But this is sort of the classical uh, deconstruction of this mental quality we call mindfulness. Sati is the Pali word. Right, so it's it really has this root meaning of remembering, remembering to recognize, remembering to connect with the present moment, and the characteristic of sati of mindfulness is said to be the non or the not wobbling, the not floating away, not spinning away from the the way it is, the present moment, and the function, the task of mindfulness is to remember, to not forget the absence of confusion. And this is interesting. I mean, you'll see this. However powerful there is when doubt is sort of governing, pushing the mind around, as soon as the mind just connects with the present moment, there's never doubt there. It doesn't matter what the mind knows in the moment, but when it's actually connecting with touching, and the awareness the mind is knowing, oh yeah, touching's like this, there's no doubt in the direct immediacy of touching or, oh, that's just a thought. Doubt is only in the realm of being lost in thought, caught or identified with thought. That's, where, that's the realm where, where doubt exists. So mindfulness connecting with the present moment removes doubt. I mean, it may not be for long, but in that moment, doubt ceases or the absence of confusion. The manifestation is said to be guard, guardianship, confronting an object, objective field, right? It, it's protecting, being mindful. The proximate cause, strong perception, four foundations of mindfulness. I think I'd replace the word strong here. This is uh, Steve Armstrong's chart. Strong perception with wise perception. Because, you know, Perceptions are all over the board. It's like how the past names some object that's being known. And what we'd like is the perception, the naming of the object or the recognizing of the object. This is what we call sanya, perception. We'd like it to be influenced by the Buddha's view, which is it's just this being known. It's just the thing in itself being known as opposed to you know, perceptual habit that embellishes or charges it or 
you know, is affected by the feeling. So it's it's really being colored by the not liking it because it's unpleasant or liking it because it's pleasant. This is a great little discourse. I forget who translated it this way. In what, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? And the Buddha responds, Practitioners, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise dolt. (laughs) Practitioners, whatever states there are that are wholesome, partaking of the wholesome, pertaining to the wholesome, they are all rooted in diligence, converge upon diligence. And diligence is declared to be chief among them. When a practitioner is diligent, it is expected that they will develop and cultivate the seven factors of awakening. So remember, the seven factors of awakening is part of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness. Because I mentioned last week, then when the Buddha's talking about mindfulness, first he says, like, yeah, in order to connect with the body, you need to understand, you have to remove from the perceptual process the habit of seeing things in terms of beauty and ugly, right? So we tend to, like, charge experience, like the body, as being beautiful or not beautiful. So the 32 body parts, as I mentioned last week, Really, we see the body in this more simple way, just skin, flesh, and bones. It's not about it being beautiful or unbeautiful. It just sort of normalizes and neutralizes things that tend to be charged. It's really hard, like if you... um, We have an assignment for this race and dharma class that uh, Gabe and I are both doing through the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, this great organization in Massachusetts. I highly recommend their study courses that they do there. Some of them you can do online, like the one we're doing, and most of them you have to show up for a few days, or some of them are a week long. But anyway, our assignment this week is to go sit in a public space and just observe what comes and goes, where people are coming and going, but to observe it in terms of like racial, the racial conditioning that has been conditioned into our mind. Like this try to illuminate how it is. And the, the more general point is we have so much around body, you know, our body, other people's body. It's just amazing, like around the size of body or the shape of body or the perception of the age of the body, you know, or how the body's clothed, you know, with what we would consider to be hip clothes or not so hip clothes or Expensive clothes or not expensive clothes, well-capped, uncapped, age, perception of gender, perception of attractiveness, you know, all those things are playing out when we're observing the body. So we need to neutralize it because really it's just skin, flesh, and bones, right? and cotton and polyester fabric. You know, put the clothes here in a pile. Your pile of clothes is not so different than my pile of clothes in its essence. Your pile of skin is not so different than my pile of skin 
your pile of bones, not so different than mine, your pile of juicy parts, not so different than my pile of juicy parts, or anybody's pile of juicy parts, the organs and muscles and flesh. And then to, in a more subjective experiencing of the body, you know, the different touches we have all day long, all life long, they're not really special. The hardness that I feel is not really different than the hardness or the warmth or coolness that you're experiencing at times, not different than mine. It's not this whole lived experience of sensation is not special to anybody. You know, this collection of these elements, you know, whether you divide it in the traditional Buddhist way of the four elements, temperature and earth elements of hardness and softness and water element of that cohesive factor and the wind element of movement or stillness. But the fact, the important fact is it's not personal, it's impersonal, right? So we're teasing out that distortion of personalizing the body or turning the body into something that's attractive or not attractive, or imagining that the body's permanent, right? So we do the cemetery contemplation and realize whatever it is, it's born, it lives for a while, and then it falls apart and turns to dust. You know, I'm one of those people who had a relatively, seems like, you know, as much as I can understand my condition, healthy experience in the Catholic Church. I mean, my family was pretty into it as a kid, um, Parents were pretty devout Catholics their whole life, and I went to Catholic school for eight years, and uh, you know, altar boy, all that kind of stuff. And I really loved that uh, ritual at Lent. Some of you know where you know they, I guess they put their thumb in the ash and do the little cross, and uh, from see if I have it right, from ash to ash. Anybody remember the phrase? Dust to dust. Yeah, it's nice. It's like just remembering the sort of, I mean, it's, it's so nice for something real to be spoken. You know, that there's a certain authenticity that cuts through so much falseness that, you know, especially as a kid that you're surrounded by. And, you know, for someone just to say that and to make some pomp or, ceremony around that i always i always appreciated that just felt very real and grounded and then with feeling tone to see the impermanent nature of it and then one when those four what what are called the four distortions are corrected or abandoned you know mad seeing things in terms of beautiful and ugly instead of a more neutral way Seeing things as being personal instead of an impersonal, you know, seeing things as being um, permanent when they're not really permanent, and see, seeing things to be uh, ultimately satisfying when they're not satisfying. Like feeling, we we just assume like when I get a pleasant feeling, I'll be taken care of forever, but it never happens. There's just nowhere, no place we're gonna get permanent satisfaction because feeling, pleasant feeling in, in particular, isn't dependable, right? Have you, has anybody ever found a pleasant feeling that they could build their life on and like take care of their ego forever? No. We don't find that pleasantness. We don't get to that place where we're safe. It's only going to be pleasant from now on.
There's no, it doesn't work that way. So when those are uprooted, then we can, on a more refined way, bring the mind into balance, really understand the mind, because the mind isn't obsessed with the four distortions of attractiveness and taking things personally and imagining things are permanent or satisfactory. And the only thing that's left is the beauty of the mind, the beauty of the simple mind, right? It's like uprooting or abandoning the four distortions, then there's only one life raft left for a human being, which is this sort of inner quality of the mind that is undisturbed. Samadhi, inner state of calm and clarity and peace. Nothing else feels like a refuge. And so the last part of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, as I mentioned last week, mindfulness of the mind and mindfulness of dhammas. That's the fourth foundation. It's some, you know, dhammas has a couple different meanings. Dharma or dhamma sometimes refers to the Buddhist teachings, like when we take refuge in the dharma. Sometimes people think of that, I'm taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. Sometimes people think of it, dharma or dhamma, as the way it is. But in this case, it's really pointing to um, the maps, like the seven factors of awakening, where we're really understanding the, this refuge, the beauty of the mind, the mind coming into sort of a beautiful state of balance and stability and power. I like, I'm more and more like using the word power because we want power. And, and this, this is very, this feeling of the mind being in balance and functional and powerful is very trustworthy because it meets our needs all the way along the spectrum from being kind of uh, a frightened beast, sort of in a more primitive mode of our conditioning, being a frightened beast and wanting power, wanting to be able to handle life, all the way to the more sublime part of our mind that just wants to be free. Samadhi makes sense for the whole range of our conditioning. It's attractive. There's no part of our conditioned mind that is not attracted to samadhi. There's no part of our heart and mind that will mistrust it when it knows what it is. It's just seen as good and functional and useful in all kind of levels. And this is what's, this becomes more apparent when we're not wasting our time because of the four distortions. You know, not seeing impermanence, imagining things are permanent and satisfying and beautiful. Right, all these ways we tend to, you know, the, these lenses we tend to look through as if there is something permanent and satisfying and beautiful uh, in this sort of external sense. And that's really the seven factors of awakening. So mindfulness is like, when the Buddha's talking about a moment of mindfulness, it's really a liberated moment. That's why this book... Uh, made such a splash when Thich Nhat Hanh, one of his first books, The Miracle of Mindfulness, he calls it a miracle. It's a little bit of a miracle. Every moment of real mindfulness is a bit of a miracle. 
Because in that moment, the mind is free of so much when it's just connecting with experience without being distorted in these four ways that we've talked about. And really understanding this development, you know. So just to review the, you know, we have a whole course on the seven factors of awakening, but there's mindfulness as the balancing factor. And then there's three energizing and three tranquilizing factors that are mindfulness as a balancing factor knows how to keep in mind or to keep in balance rather. So we have investigation and energy and joy. Don't forget joy. And the tranquilizing factors are tranquility, stillness of concentration and equanimity. And so the full development of mindful awareness and samadhi and wisdom, it's really all in a moment of mindfulness become the same thing. The mind is mindful, the mind is stable, and the mind is wise, right there. Wise in the sense that that mind sees things as they are. That mind will see what it normally doesn't see because the mind isn't in balance, it isn't stable. So it, you know, it sees more deeply and clearly in a way that uproots the habit of imagining that things are permanent or that they're satisfying, or that they're beautiful. You know, kind of this dualistic sense that of turning things into beautiful and ugly. Which of the four am I missing here? Satisfying, beautiful, permanent, and personal. Yeah, I forgot the personal, impersonal, right? That it's not personal, it's just nature. Nature, not self. So in a way then, the, a lot of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness are really about what kind of understanding is needed to just have a moment of connecting with the present moment. A lot of what we're doing is developing the momentum and the wisdom just to be able to connect. It was interesting in the retreat I was on in February with Venerable Analio, this German monk, he described in his practice, the evolution of his practice, and I, and I think a really interesting way. He said uh, something like, he's moved from being a hunter in his practice, waiting for and wanting something to happen, to being a vegetarian. Someone content to sow wholesome seeds, being patient, trusting, and gradual cultivation. Right? It's a different mindset when you're a hunter you know, and outthinking the prey, and you know this uh, this sort of everything rests in that sort of moment you throw the spear or you shoot the gun or whatever you know, however you're hunting, and you, you get it or not. But you know, with cultivation, cultivating food, uh, plants rather, you know, it doesn't matter if one plant doesn't survive. You sort of you're setting a lot in motion. I mean, there's sort of interesting things about this transition from being more hunters and to being sort of agriculturalists. Because there's one of the things that in this book that some of us have read, Sapiens, by uh, her, um, what is his name? Harari. Yeah, this Israeli uh, history professor who's written a couple of wonderful books, including Sapiens. But he talks about like in this transition from being hunter-gatherers to 
agriculturalists, it's like one of the things about sitting in one place is like when you're always moving around, you can't have a lot of stuff, right? And your work actually gets done. You know, you you cook the meat you have or you dried the meat you have and it's, it's you don't go hunting at night. So you can really like play songs or dance around the fire. You can do stuff that's sort of fun. But when you've got a garden, you know, there's really no end. You can always be doing stuff. You can build another cistern. You can be digging that next well. You know, you can be repairing the pump. You can be turning over the compost. You can be doing this. You can be doing that. There's no end to your work. And this is maybe exhausting, but in terms of our mind and cultivating the causes for this harmony, for this stability of mind, for this valuing of mindfulness, it's like we can constantly be setting in motion developing the momentum for mindfulness. And it doesn't matter if we've just recently taken four steps back because it always makes sense to take the next step forward, to plant the next seed and the next seed and the next seed. And we'll do this if we really understand the law of karma, that seeds have effects. And this is true with whatever it is that we're cultivating. It will have its effect if we just keep planting those seeds. And the first and most important seed is the um, valuing mindfulness and, and just even refining our understanding of what it is and what it isn't. Because you can't really value something you don't know, you don't recognize. It doesn't mean you can give a talk on mindfulness that you can verbally articulate what it is. Like some people maybe will be particularly skilled in sort of verbalizing sort of what they're coming to know in their practice. But that doesn't mean, just because you can't verbalize what mindfulness is, doesn't mean you're not really deepening your understanding of what it is. Uh, and also in this retreat, uh, Analio, Venerable Analio, this Buddhist monk, was his first time teaching at uh, IMS. He, he taught a retreat with Joseph Goldstein, and he talked about a conversation he had, I think in private, it wasn't like part of their teaching together, about uh, yeah, there's just this tendency in our tradition to emphasize these peak experiences we have in meditation where the mind got really calm or there's like sort of an unusual meditative experience, maybe some lights or some ecstatic movement of joy in the body and mind or something like that. And uh, just how together they had come to understand over the years of their practice that what is a much better barometer is the sort of very gradual transformation of the tendencies, qualities of their mind or heart. That that's actually... Like when we talk about talk with our friends, our Dharma friends, about our practice, instead of like talking about those highlights, those fireworks, the peak experiences that we've had as a human being, as a practitioner, we should talk more about, and it seems boring, but just this more gradual transformation, like more space in the mind, less a little bit less reactivity, 
a little bit more quick to recover when I do lose it, you know, a little bit more willing to forgive myself, or I like this phrase, you know, to not criminalize, you know, my actions, my way of being. And that, uh, maybe I'll end with this. Uh, It reminds me of, and some of you heard me because I was really into sharing this discourse of the Buddha uh, maybe six months ago or a year ago. I forget when it came up in one of our courses here, maybe in the Buddhist studies, but I can't remember which one it was. But it's um, one of the Buddhist discourses, and it's in Wings to Awakening. It's number 20, if some of you have that book by Ajantana Sarau, where he sort of covers all the maps that the Buddha uses. And he has a lot of the discourses. And this is all online, Wings to Awakening by Ajahn Tani Sarau. And the number 20 is uh, this particular discourse where the Buddha talks about the path as being lawful. And he says, like if there's a hen, a chicken hen, right? And uh, it really wants its eggs to hatch. really wants them to hatch. It really wants those eggs to hatch. Well, that strong, strong, clear, intense desire for the eggs to hatch has actually nothing to do with the eggs hatching, right? It doesn't matter how pure that wish is, how steady that wish is, because there are actual causes for the eggs to hatch. And when those actual causes, supporting causes are met, like keeping them warm at a steady temperature for a certain number of days, then those fertile eggs are going to hatch. And if those causes, supporting causes aren't met, they're not going to hatch. So the Buddha gives this as an example, like if we want to be mindful, if we want the continuity of awareness, we need to know what it is and we need to learn directly in our own experience what supports the arising and stabilizing of awareness and what interrupts it causes the mind to be distracted. What's the difference between a distracted mind and an undistracted mind? Right? And this is something you can share in your small groups tonight. And the other example he gives in this discourse is the axe handle. Some of you remember this when we talked about it a while back. You know, and if you used an axe every day for eight hours a day for 40 years, you know, during your career, you're a lumberjack or something like that, well, <clears throat> your hand would, would have made real impressions in the handle of the axe. But the Buddha makes the, gives this point, but you couldn't tell one day to the next the impression, like the, the, more, the deeper the impression of your hand print on the axe. But over the course of decades, you can definitely see how that axe handle has been worn down. And, and he again, this is just painting this picture of how important it is to know what mindfulness is, to know what the supporting causes are without doubt, because then we just go about the task of putting money in the piggy bank, and we know it's going to fill up. We just keep doing, planting those seeds, putting the money in the bank, and if we stick with it long enough, there will be a significant effect. And the last example in this discourse is he gives example of a boat, you know, in tropical India uh, with sails and rigging, you know, the ropes and stuff, sitting out 
you know, season after season in the sun and the rain and the wind and the slow rotting of the rigging, right? And these are all examples of the awakening process, right? And it's nice because they're four very naturalistic images of the eggs hatching because the supporting causes are there, not hatching when they're not there, the very gradual deepening of that imprint on the axe handle over the years and years of continual use and the rotting away of the rigging on a big boat just because of it being weathered day after day. Guaranteed it's going to fall apart. I just read recently, maybe some of you caught it, I forget where it was, one of the magazines or newspapers that I read. But anyway, it was an article about the enormity of geologic time here on Earth, what is it, several billion years, five billion, six billion, or something like that years, the planet they imagine the planet is, and that that there could have been civilizations, uh, you know, because human civilization began about 10,000 years ago. I mean, it's like nothing in the great scope of time. And the question, the sort of speculative question, could there have been substantial civilizations, you know, like just, I mean, this is fantastical, but maybe, because dinosaurs existed on this planet for a long time, right? So maybe there was this evolution of very intelligent dinosaurs or, you know, related uh, reptiles that kind of formed civilizations. But just, you know, in the movement of the continents and the volcanoes and the earthquakes and the shifting of the seas, whatever evidence you know, whatever cars they had or, you know. Would we know? Like, would we actually know that something existed that far back? And it's just, uh, it's just interesting, this, this sense of time and this vastness of time and really like being in it for the long haul around planting these seeds, developing the momentum Trusting that uh, and cause and effect. I'm not sure where that, why that was <laughs> relevant. Uh, oh no, no, I remember now. Yeah, because of the rotting away. Yeah, because yeah, because it's the other way. It's not the development. It's the it's the rotting away. Like over time, any semblance of knowing how to suffer will get worn down, right? If enough time. And that in the sort of the weathering, you know, just to take this metaphor a little bit further before we break into groups, <laughs> you know, like nature, the weathering of the sun and wind and humidity and rain, it will have its effect, or the wearing down of the axe handle, it will have its effect. We just need to hang out long enough. This is why relationships are so important, friendships, because we just got to stay in the vicinity of the practice long enough. We have to stay in the sunshine and the wind and rain of Dharma practice long enough. We have to keep contemplating mindfulness, being curious about mindfulness, coming back to mindfulness. And we have to imagine like we're in it for the long haul so that even if there is something called rebirth, there will be enough tendencies laid down in this lifetime that we'll just have this magnetic attraction to show up to the next Dharma center wherever we end up in the next lifetime, and we'll just pick up where we left off. I mean, that's 
kind of part of Buddhist, cu- Buddhist culture, you know, this idea of rebirth. I'm not suggesting that we believe in it, but that we just practice as if, it, as if we're in it for the long haul. Wearing down habits of suffering, habits of react, reacting, habits of fearing, habits of craving. So I'll leave it here. We have our time now for small groups. It's really just a chance to talk about mindfulness, your own learning what it is and what it isn't, your own deepening value, valuing of mindfulness, being present, your own doubts about what that is, about whether being present would actually... So don't be shy about sharing your doubts, like I don't get it or how could this matter? When I'm mindful, all I notice is that I've got a lot of tension in my body. It feels so much nicer to be watching TV or taking a walk or you know, being lost in thought. I mean, just be honest about this whole you know, process that some, for some reason we're interested in, like this thing about it's really a cult of mindfulness, Buddhism in, in the States. It's, it is. And it's like, well, what's that about? Like, what is our interest in that? Why are we attracted to it? What, is, what has our experience shown? Has there been joy involved in it? And then the other thing that might come up is just the importance of wisdom in this path. Right from the beginning, it, it's not really possible to just go right to being mindful. We have to realize like how the mind is conditioned to not be mindful. And so that's really the level of wisdom and view and what we're taking experience to be. Because we just think experience is me thinking about what's happening to me. But that's not being mindful, that's being lost in thought. So there's so much about being mindful that's correcting our view about what, isn't, what even experience is. So that we could talk about too, just that correction of view. You know, whether you do it in terms of the four distortions that I've been talking about or however makes sense to you. So it looks like a little less than 60 tonight. So why don't we do 16? So uh, next week, as I mentioned, I believe, I'll be uh, out teaching. So uh, Shelley Graff and Gabe and Ramesh will be leading the program on Samadhi. And each of them will speak from their own experience and teach from their own experience about Samadhi. And then there'll be time for a whole group discussion around Samadhi, the stability of mind. And uh, just a uh, I think this article that I linked to today in today's email that I sent to everybody by Venerable Analio, just so it's not confusing, because he really is talking about the difference between samadhi, I mean, sati and samadhi, mindfulness and concentration, with mindfulness being an inclusive awareness, different objects being known, this is being known, this is being known, where samadhi is more of an exclusive but remember, samadhi the, can be exclusive, meaning it's just knowing one thing. Sometimes it's called, a related word is um, one-pointedness. But that one point can be quite inclusive, right? Like 
if the mind is uh, not attached, then that can be the unifying object, not the objects that the mind is not attached to, but that the mind is not clinging to any object, knowing the not clinging to any object, or knowing the calm with all objects, the tranquility with all objects. So, in, uh, in a more functional way, samadhi, as opposed to like people who have a lot of time on their hand and can develop deep states of concentration, or have a natural talent for the jhanas, the deeper states of concentration, that samadhi, that kind of exclusion, the mind really withdrawing from the sense gates is a particular meditative experience that can be deeply healing and transforming. But in terms of the samadhi we're often using to develop insight, it still needs that stabilization. It's really important. And there's a sense of one-pointedness, but the one-pointedness is really the present moment. Is the way the mind unifies is with the present moment. So I want to say that just because uh, you may not be experiencing deep states of absorption in your meditation and your daily life practice. But there is really a flavor of unification, even when you're out in the day doing your stuff, that unity of the present moment. As a, so it's opposed to me having an experience, me liking this experience, me not liking this experience. The way that greed, anger, delusion fragment our experience, you'll notice, if you look for it, you'll notice moments of unity. Just this. Just this. And it's the moment for a moment, isn't fragmented. It's a subject and object. So look for that as the experience of samadhi. And you'll hear Gabe and Shelley and Ramesh talk about it next week, and then I'll be back. We'll spend another week on samadhi once I'm back uh, for week 10, and then we'll have a week on, um, sama- on wisdom, the last of the five faculties, spiritual faculties. And just a highlight of some of the stuff coming up in May, Kevin Griffin, a well-known teacher from the West Coast, will be here in town teaching in the middle of the month. He's going to do a half-day retreat on Sunday the 13th during the afternoon, and then he'll teach the Sunday evening uh, weekly Dharma group. And then on Tuesday, he's going to do a half-day retreat for the recovery community, the 12-step community, during the morning, if you or anybody's interested in that. And the retreat on Sunday is on loving-kindness. And Kevin's re- written a recent book on loving-kindness. His earlier books have been more on mindfulness and recovery. But this book is on mindfulness, his most recent. And then that Tuesday night, the 15th, he's going to help us with this fundraiser for Steve Armstrong, one of our longtime visiting teachers, well-known Dharma teacher here in the West. Uh, Steve has brain cancer and uh, want to support him. So we'll be having some beautiful music with Kevin and Alice. Some people are going to tell stories about Steve, including Steve, I know, is going to do it, and a couple other folks. And I have a little closing uh, metta, loving-kindness meditation for Steve, led by Shelley that evening. And it will probably be a lot of fun. So join us. Anybody's welcome. And if you, even if you don't know Steve, never met him, feel free to come for that evening on the 15th. And then, uh, not next week, but the next week I'm back, so week 10, if somebody would like to do a little 
Donna talked. This is the second time I asked. Don't make me specifically ask somebody. But if you haven't done that and you'd like to do that for the group, it'd be nice if you've been around for a few years and feel like you really enjoyed and come to appreciate the way we practice Donna generosity at the center, how it works, and then sort of just helping the center operate. Then come share your, you know, for two, three, five minutes, share your reflections on Donna for the group. Any other announcements? I think we might still need another dish for the retreat, two dishes. So if you're interested in helping out, just one now. Are you the cook, Sharon? Hmm? Oh, but you're not the kitchen manager. No. Tina? Oh, that's right, Tina is. Yeah, great. So anyway, uh, contact the center or there might be a slip of paper and you can find out what remains to be cooked. seems to me it was a quinoa dish. And uh, if you don't know, we have all the supplies you'll need. We'll reimburse you for the groceries if you'd like. And it's a really great way to support those people who can go on retreat. So I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Take care, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.